Before we open God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Lord, as we read and consider this portion of your holy word, let your voice be heard by your people. From week to week, we hear many things from many worldly voices, but we have come today to hear from the true and living God. Renew a right spirit within us. Help us to take heed how we hear. Lord, so much pride stands in the pulpit. Please come and work in spite of sin. Help all of us that we may cast off that which is worldly and self-centered and arrogant. Help us to focus upon you and your word. Take the meager scraps of this poor minister and do a spirit work of multiplication that our hearts and minds may be fed richly from the bounty of your word. Come to us, we pray, Holy Spirit, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask it for his sake. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Our text is Romans 2, verses 25 through 29. Romans 2, beginning in verse 25. Hear the word of God. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen. All men are like the grass, and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. Amen. Your understanding of these verses hinges on your understanding of the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. That's not much of a surprise since some version of that word is written ten times in these uh, five short verses. Circumcision is probably a word we've heard a lot as we've read through the scriptures. Maybe not something we think about as much because it was the Old Testament sacrament that has been replaced in the new by baptism. Uh, Circumcision was a ritual act administered to males in the covenant of God's people. So either you were an infant or uh, you were an infant born to believing parents or you were an adult convert. And in circumcision, the foreskin is cut as an abiding reminder of your membership in the family of God. It was a sacrament given by God 
to our father Abraham as a sign of God's faithfulness and as a seal of his enduring promises. And, and just like it is for our sacraments today in the Lord's Supper and baptism, circumcision uh, was not something that led to salvation in any way. It was always a sign of the salvation that only God could procure for his people. In the case of infants, as we would say today with baptism, uh, it was a sign of their covenant membership by birth, and it invited them in time to take hold of God's promises by faith. And so circumcision's purpose was to remind God's people of his promises to be their Savior. So much in the same way that our sacraments remind us of what God has done as we look back to Christ. The the sacraments of the Old Testament, circumcision included, invited God's people to look forward in time to the coming Savior who would one day redeem them from their sin. They were saved the same way we are, by faith in the Messiah. They just looked a different direction than we do. The object was far off, but still it was Christ that the sacrament was meant to point to The words of our larger catechism in 162 say, A sacrament signifies, seals, and exhibits to those that are in the covenant the benefits of Christ's mediation. So for us, the baptism and the Lord's Supper point to the washing of sin in Christ and point to his death on the cross for us and and circumcision and the Passover and the other types and and shadows of the Old Testament did the same thing. They pointed to the need for bloodshed, the need for substitution. They pointed to Christ's mediation. But the divines go on in question 162 of the larger and say that a sacrament does these four things. One, it strengthens and increases faith and all other graces. That it was meant to be a reminder of the kindness and the mercy of God. Secondly, it, it obliges those participating to obedience. That for those who are participating by faith, who have come to a knowledge of the Scriptures and of the will of God for salvation in Christ, it, it, it obliges us to walk in the covenant. Thirdly, they say it, it, the sacrament testifies of, of the mutual love and communion that those in the covenant have together. That's why baptism and the Lord's Supper don't happen just off in somebody's home somewhere. They happen in this room with God's people. And fourthly, it says that it, the sacraments distinguish those inside the covenant from those that are without the covenant. So here's the question that's on your mind. Why does Paul all of a sudden start talking about circumcision so much here in verse 25? Well, now, now you need to think back and remember, Paul has been arguing with this hypothetical Jew, Right? Paul knew the arguments they would make against his declarations in this chapter. He had declared back in the middle of chapter 1 that anyone who will ever be saved must be saved with a righteousness that comes by faith. If you hope to be saved, Paul says, it's going to come from a righteousness that's outside of yourself. 
And he proved the, the sinfulness, the need of the pagan to seek after this alien righteousness. That was the second half of chapter 1. And in the beginning of chapter 2, now to where we are, he, he, he has been proving the sinfulness of the Jew as well, the, the morally religious person. But the Jew has had a few more objections uh, to throw up than the pagan did. We've been over these, right? In, in Paul's mind, he's arguing with the Jew who would, who, would, um, who would remark back to him that he doesn't need the gospel because why? Well, he would say, I have the law. God has given me this special thing that I have, and Paul responded to that. And the, and the man might say, well, I have the calling of God, and I have a responsibility to be the instructor of these foolish Gentiles that live in the world. But there's one more objection that Paul's opponent has left to make as he pushes back against Paul's declaration of, of universal sinfulness. The, the, the Jew will say, I, I don't need your gospel, Paul. And he'll object to what Paul has said in verses 6 or 11, where he declared that, that there's no partiality with God, that before God's face there is no favoritism. Even a Jew faces the danger of God's wrath. And the self-assured Jew snipes back one more time, but my possession of circumcision marks me as God's. And so I am safe no matter what my life may look like. Paul knows the mind of his Jewish opponents. All of the arguments that he's been making here in chapter 2 are anticipatory. He, he knows what's going to come out of their mouth as soon as they read this epistle that he has written. He knows the very objections they will raise. And so he addresses this final one here at the end of chapter 2. And he sort of sets up a case study. A hypothetical interaction between a Jew and a Gentile and their interaction with the law. John Fesco says it like this as he moves into the end of this chapter. He says, Paul here zeroes in on what he perceives is the Jew's chief problem, his formalism. His formalism. He writes, in other words, sometimes people believe that so long as everything on the outside looks acceptable, so long as public perception is acceptable, it matters not what occurs on the inside. He says, in this case, Paul goes after the Israelite pride in the sign of the covenant, their God-given mark that distinguished them from the surrounding nations, namely circumcision. And so what he presents to us is, is in 25 through 27 is basically his case study. What about circumcision and obedience to the law? And what about uncircumcision and obedience to the law? And he makes some points. And then in verses 28 and 29, he really drives home his concluding principle from this case study, but it also serves as the culminating point of the whole chapter in his accusation against the Jew. What we see here in 25 through 27 to start with is that covenant signs are worthless in themselves. Look at the beginning of, uh, of verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. 
right? You can almost hear him responding to the Jew who says, but what about circumcision? Is circumcision just worthless to us? And Paul says, no, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Think about this. If you're walking in the covenant, if you're living by the precepts that God has handed down to the covenant people, circumcision is of value to you. Why? Because it reminds you of the promises that God has made to you. It's an, it's an everyday part of your life. Um, it, it reminds you and encourages you and exhibits to you the grace that God has shown in choosing you to be a part of His people and upholding you through difficulties it reminds you of the promise that one day, though you should die, someone else will die in your place and you will be saved from sin and hell. It is a constant reminder in the life of God's people. This is what God's intention for it was. In Genesis 17, when he gave this sacrament to Abraham, God says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. He says, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, listen, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Not, not uh, Abraham, if you and your children would like to be saved, you need to do this ritual act that I'm going to give you to do. No, Abraham, I have saved you, you are mine, and in order that you might remember that you're mine, I have something for you to do. It's, it's, it's a constant reminder of what God has done in the life of His people. Circumcision, indeed, is of value if you're walking in the laws of the covenant. But look at the second half of 25. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If you break the law, if you disown the covenant, if you push back from the grace that God has given to you, then the covenant sign becomes no good to you. For it has nothing with which to encourage you because you're walking away from God. He basically says if, if, if you're living like this, you might as well be uncircumcised. <clears throat> Consider an Israelite young man, a, a baby boy rather at the beginning, born into a Jewish home, circumcised on the eighth day, raised observing the, the Passover with his family. Once he gets a little bit older, able to travel with his father and the other members of his family up to, to Shiloh or to Jerusalem, wherever it may have been, to worship at the tabernacle or the temple those three times a year when they were called to go. Once he moved out of his parents' home, though, he, he started observing these things less frequently. Sure, when he got married and had some sons of his own, he had them circumcised, but that's just what you do in the family. He didn't teach them God's word in the home. They didn't practice the Passover together. They failed to go up to the tabernacle or the temple to observe the feasts. You know, after a while, you, he was trying to keep them hidden, but you, he starts to be less and less ashamed of them, and there's little pagan idols floating around his house, and sometimes he prays to them, and over time he, he devotes himself to them, and you can hear him speaking the different languages of the people and bowing down to the idols of the nations around them. And after a while, we might look at such a man who had been circumcised and a part of Israel and, and in every way ethnically connected to the people of God, but we would identify him and say that he, no, he looks no different 
from the Philistine pagan that lives just a little ways down the road. Of what value is circumcision to a man like that? It is no value to him at all. That's what Paul is saying. That the sign of God's grace in his life is effectively not there because there is no grace of God in his life. Because he's living apart from the grace of God. He's chosen to go his own way. And so Paul says, if you break the law, if you live apart from God's desire, then, then the sign that you had might as well not exist. You know, as we read this, we might read and think that Paul is saying something sort of revolutionary here in Romans chapter 2, something so surprising to any Jews that might be paying attention to him. But the truth is that, the truth is that Paul is really just repeating something that had been reiterated in the, New, the Old Testament several times already. It's nothing new that he's writing here to the Jew. Jeremiah spoke of something like this in, in chapter 9 of his prophecy. Just an important thing to note, you may not know that with the exception of the Philistines, most of Israel's neighboring nations also practiced circumcision. Now, not as a part of, of the Israelite ritual and sacrament, but just as common practice for, for health and sanitary reasons. One of Jeremiah's striking condemnations of the Jewish people are in the lines that he delivers in Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 25. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Listen to the list. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised. Okay, so, so we're on board so far. Yeah, Judah sinned a little bit, and they're included in this list, but he's going to punish all of those who are just sort of uncircumcised pagans that live out there. But he adds at the end, and also all the house of Israel, for they're uncircumcised in heart. Not physically uncircumcised, but Jeremiah declared that Israel in that moment of time was uncircumcised in heart. Listen to F.F. Bruce. Israel's neighbors, for the most part, practiced circumcision, but the circumcision of Israel's neighbors was not a sign of God's covenant. Okay. Yet, if Israel and Judah departed in their hearts from God, their physical circumcision would be in God's sight no better than that of their neighbors. So far as any religious value was concerned, it was no circumcision at all. This is extremely important. We misunderstand the Old Covenant so often. We misunderstand the way the Old Testament was, was dispensed to God's people so often. It is so similar to the way things are now. It's fuller. There's, there's, um, there's less uh, hubbub today in the New Testament. But, but it was so similar. It was never just about external things. It was always about the heart. Always about the heart. And that's why Paul is so up against the Jew who wants to throw out the external things. I have the law, and I have knowledge, and I have circumcision. And Paul says, you've missed the whole point of the Old Testament system. That's why they don't want the gospel. 
is because they fail to see that everything in the Old Testament was pointing them spiritually to the one who came in the New Testament. We're going to hit this in, in 28 and 29 here in a moment. But you need to see the thread that, that is woven through from the Old Testament all the way here to Romans 2 and beyond. That circumcision wasn't ever only just about external things. Paul's not going out on a limb. He's not saying something outlandish. This has always been the way it is. And nobody should be surprised at what he has to say in 25. Maybe a little surprised at 26. So, if a man who is uncircumcised then keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision then be regarded as circumcision? So he basically flips it. He says, okay, if the circumcised man in the covenant disobeys the law and lives apart from it, and his circumcision becomes uncircumcision, well then can we say the other thing? If, if an uncircumcised man apart from the covenant keeps the things that are in the covenant, does his circumcision all of a sudden become regarded as circumcision? And, and, and it's a rhetorical question, but it's, it's a yes, just in case you're wondering. Yes, yes, that's the answer to the question of 26. Paul says, you know, consider this. You argue in the face of the gospel presentation that you need an alien righteousness, you Jew. You argue instead that you have circumcision. And so Paul says, fine. If circumcision counts for something, what about the person that obeys all God's law but doesn't have circumcision? Now the natural conclusion, and there's some, this is hints of things to come, the natural conclusion is that there is something going on in, in, in verse 26 man's heart which causes him to live obediently. He does not have circumcision. He's never had the outward precepts of the law. But the spiritual realities that, that circumcision stands for have come and found a place in his heart. Only by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, only by the work of regeneration. Paul's probably talking about a converted Gentile in 26, but that's not his point. He's going to get to that later. His point is to draw out from the Jew. He wants to stun them to some degree because this idea of 26 is so unthinkable for the arrogant Jewish man. How could someone keep the law without the external precepts? How could someone without the law and without the covenant and, and, and without all of the Old Testament system and without circumcision, how could they possibly live the way God wants them to live? Bearing in mind that as they balk at that idea and question these things, they're not living according to God's law at all. Paul is riffing on something that he said earlier in the chapter. You could probably just look up at verse 13. Remember this startling statement it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's not those who have the law in their tabernacle every month. It's, it's not those who have circumcision. It's not those who are part of the covenant necessarily by outward means. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous. But what does he say in 13? The doers of the law who will be justified. What's he getting at in 25 and 26 then? What's the, what's the train of thought as he arrives at the end of that rhetorical question? Simply this possession of the covenant sign 
will not save you. Do you see? Your circumcision, if you're reliant on that, it will fail you. It will fail you. He makes it even more clear in 27. Then he, he's still speaking about this verse 26 man. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but is keeping the law, this man will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. He's, he's building off of verse 13, right? That keepers of the law are right before God. It doesn't matter if you have the covenant sign. A law keeper will always stand as illustrative condemnation to the lawbreaker. The disobedient Jew had every reason to follow God, right? He was taught. He was educated. He was catechized. He, he knew the right way to go. That's back in 17 through 20. He knew the way to go. He had every reason to obey. He had every reason to trust in the coming promises. Yes, those promises in the Old Testament were vaguer than they are now, but they weren't unclear entirely. They, they knew what was coming. They knew what they needed to do in order to be saved. And so for the disobedient Jew, his failure to trust the Lord and his failure to walk with God is compounded by the obedience of the Gentile who had none of the same advantages, you see. John Murray writes it like this as he, as he talks about the end of this chapter. He says, the apostle, pers- the apostle pursued the Jew into his last retreat. So think of all these arguments this Jew has thrown up in, in Paul's mind. And finally he says, yes, but I saved the best for last. I have circumcision. Murray says, the apostle pursued him to his last retreat and stripped him of the last refuge to which he usually betook himself, his elusive trust in the possession of circumcision. He's taken it away. You you can't trust in this, Paul says. This will not hold. You will not be saved simply because of a physical marking. Now, before we move on to 28 and 29 and the conclusion of of this part of Paul's argument, I want us to look at a couple of things in these verses and get some clarity. First is this. The Jew against whom Paul is arguing was trusting in his possession of circumcision— to deliver him from the wrath of God. And if that sounds like a silly sentence, that's because it's a very silly sentence. It doesn't make any sense. How could a physical marking deliver from the wrath of God, which is judgment handed down against everything we've ever thought, said, did, or, or, or otherwise? It doesn't make any sense. The, 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 the Jew that Paul is arguing against, he was, he was hoping that, that his adherence to outward rituals would profit him on the day of judgment so that he would do just what he's been doing with Paul, so to speak, is that he'd get to the day of judgment full of sin and wickedness and he'd say, yes, but I, I was a part of your people and I was marked out physically and I read the law and I went to tabernacle and none of those things count. None of those things will deliver. But here's the point. This temptation to trust in outward rituals is not something that only ancient Jews or even ancient Christians struggled with. It is ever-present today among us. 
I, that's not my way of accusing any of you. That's not what I mean. I trust the Holy Spirit to work on your hearts. But have you ever met someone who said, yeah, I'm a Christian? I was baptized when I was a teenager. I walked the aisle. I was, I'm a good Presbyterian. I was baptized as a baby. And maybe you, you continue the conversation along and you ask about their church home or their preacher or what they're going through in Sunday school or you know, just, just any, anything that would follow up a normal conversation about being a believer. And they go, oh, well, I don't really engage in any of that kind of stuff. I just figure I was once saved, I'll always be saved, and I was baptized, and that'll, that'll suffice, right? Maybe in some cases they've got a couple baptisms, and they just kind of double them up and hope that counts for something more. I don't mean to be crass. That person is trusting an outward ritual to deliver them from the wrath of God. It's everywhere. It's all over the South. This is, this is the world in which we live. A bunch of morally good-looking people that think they're going to heaven because they got put in some water or got some water put on them at some point. Paul says that's not the way it works. I, I would urge you to search your hearts. Are, are you relying on some outward ritual to define your stance before the living God? Young people, you, you cannot lean upon the faith of your parents. It, it won't hold up. Baptized or not, well, okay, Presbyterian Church, most of the children here baptized will we'll assume something. It won't hold up on the day of judgment. That little water won't quench the fires of hell. You need a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will redeem you from your sin. We see also here that the possession of the covenant sign means nothing apart from the spiritual realities that it represents. Here's what we mean. Sacraments, we can bring into the New Testament. Baptism does not save you. Now, you might be surprised to hear this. There are more people than just Roman Catholics but that believe it does. There are people in Reformed camps that we might agree with on 99% of things that will say that baptism regenerates and that is heresy, that is wrong. Baptism will not save you. Neither will participation in the supper grant you a seat in glory. The sacraments do not save. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are wonderful mysteries that, that we might not ever fully understand. But we know this. They are pictures of spiritual realities. They illustrate for us what God has done. They illustrate for us what He has done for us in Christ. He has washed us clean from sin by the blood of the Lamb, and He nourishes us and sustains us in all that we will endure. That the physical elements of water and bread and wine do not do these things. 
Only the Holy Spirit can accomplish these tasks. Sacraments are not necessary for salvation. And, and, and this, this whole train of thought is sort of what's behind the final two verses. Look at 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Now Paul sums up here what, what is already made clear. The outward is of no consequence on its own. Yes. Rather, he says, it is the heart that matters. This is how Matthew Henry rephrases verse 29 in particular with the New Testament believer in mind. He says, He is not a Christian that is one outwardly, nor is that baptism which is outward in the flesh, but he rather is a Christian that is one inwardly. And baptism is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. We can be too consumed with with outward things and forget about the inward things. And this is where I want you to know that this is not just a nice lesson on the unbelieving Jew that Paul's arguing with in his own mind and imagination. I hope that the weight of the text finds its impression on your heart. Being one of God's covenant children is not simply about being baptized and then attending church on a somewhat regular basis. Being one of God's children is not about being mostly good and about saying prayers before meals. In the gospel that Paul is just now beginning to unravel for us, the Lord is after the hearts of his people. Now, yes, these outward things are important, and we ought to obey with every fiber of our being. But listen, God is seeking worshipers to worship him. He, he doesn't need, nor does he want, unbelievers who hypocritically claim his name. That's not what he's looking for. He wants those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so let the text urge you to be a real Christian and to rest in Christ and to love God and love his word and love his people. What do we make of the closing words at the end of 29? His praise, speaking of this Jew, who's an inward Jew, a true Jew, a Christian, a believer in Christ, one who trusts in the promise of God, his praise is not from man, but from God. Why does Paul mention this here at the end? Well, he's implying that the unbelieving Jew is so interested in outward things because he's so interested in outward praise. He, he wants acclaim from things he can see from, from people in the world. It's at this point in his commentary that John Fesco uh, says about these last couple of lines that, that people in any age can fall into this kind of formalism where, where we only care about the outside because we only care about praise from men and we care not for what God thinks. We care not about pleasing him, but only to please those in front of us, whoever they may be. 
And he pulls in a quote from Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel, speaking about this kind of hypocrisy of claiming to love God, but only really loving the opinion of men. Abrakel writes, We practice this when in the engagement of religious exercise we have ourselves in view so that we may be honored by men. This occurs when a minister, he gives several examples, this, this occurs when a minister stirs up his gifts, appears to be filled with the Spirit in prayer, pe- preaches with much fire, but with all this his objective is to be esteemed as godly and learned and to have the praise and esteem of the people. How abominable. He goes on with another example. He says, this occurs when a person faithfully comes to church and sits there gravely and, and attentively in order to gain the reputation of being pious. Or, or sings to let his voice be heard and how well he knows the tune. This also occurs when one sighs loudly during prayer and makes worshipful and even foolish gestures in order to be seen and heard. This takes place when a person puts on a show of being very attentive during the sermon while in the meantime he is secretly looking about to observe whether others see him. It is also about the case when one casts but a little in the basket of the deacon and is desirous that it sounds as if it were a great gift. In one word, hypocrisy is to create the appearance of serving God while in reality having men in view and thus one's self. Beloved, flee. Flee the hypocrisy of desiring to please men over God. At the end of chapter 2, I will admit with you that it still feels a little bit like Paul's holding out on us. So much weightiness about sinfulness and still nothing of justification by faith or what Christ has done for us. Why? This is important. I'll point you in the right place in a second, but why? Why is he holding out still? Because he is begging the question, do you know that you are in need of saving and do you know that you cannot save yourself? This is where we're going to get in Romans chapter 3 and 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. May God help us. Amen. Father, for the sake of your dear Son, our Savior, send the Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Strip us of pride and arrogance and help us to walk faithfully all of our days. The glory of our